But today we continue our study in the Gospel of John. And I would invite you to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 35 through 51. John 1, 35. And it begins this way. The next day again, John, of course, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. You remember from last time we were in John chapter 1, there was this mystery, this divine mystery about who Jesus is. John seems to even not quite know. He says, There's one standing among you who is the Christ. But today, in, in this passage, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. You can almost, in, in my mind, I can almost see almost little quotation marks around that, that word followed here. Jesus turned and, and saw them following And he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who also, uh, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but first, some people kind of begin to follow Jesus because they heard the preaching of John, but now Jesus himself is calling people out. And he's saying to them, you follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Would you pray with me? God, as we encounter again your word, I am confronted uh, with my own insufficiency, with my own weakness and failings and inability to fully 
uh, plumb the depths of everything that is in your word, but we have this one confidence today, that the Spirit of God is able to make your word make sense to us. So I pray that that is what would happen. For the believer, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would make it possible that we could understand what your word is saying, not what we feel that it means, but what it means. And I pray that if there is one here today who is not trusting in you, doesn't believe in, in Jesus, hasn't placed their faith, hasn't passed from death to life, that today the Holy Spirit of God would make these words make sense and that you would help us to see that you are the one worth dropping everything for in order to follow. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things about studying through narrative, which is this is, this is what John is, it's a, it's a gospel, but it's, it's telling a story, is that um, sometimes we have, to, we have to work a little harder to pick up on what the story is saying. In other words, the, the, the donuts are not on the bottom shelf here when we're reading through narrative. The, the meaning is there, but the, the gospel of John just doesn't just give up its meaning that easily. It won't just come out and tell us what the point is. We have to, we have to do a little bit of work, maybe like peel and eat shrimp. We have to, to get, get down to it. I don't know. I just came back from the beach, so maybe all my metaphors are going to be seafood and luggage, right? That's probably what it's going to be. We have to work for what is, what is going on here. Let's, what is a story telling us? Well, I think we see a picture of two kinds of following Jesus that occur. There were some people that followed Jesus and, and apparently they followed him genuinely as best they could because they were the people who kept following Jesus. But after hearing the preaching of John the Baptist, there were some people who, I guess maybe out of curiosity or out of trying to see who this Jesus guy was, they began following Jesus, right? There's one kind of category of following him. I'm curious. Maybe Jesus has some benefits that look appealing to me. And, and then there's another kind of following. It's the kind of following that happens after Jesus says to you, follow me. And these are the people who are, who are willing to drop everything, drop the fishing nets, drop everything I've got because I see that Jesus is worth it all. I wonder... If this picture of, of following, like in scare quotes, following, and then bold letters, italics, capital case, following Jesus. I wonder if that message has anything that we can learn today. I think so. I think so. But if you think about leaders, if you think about the kind of people that people are willing to follow, I thought up a few different examples uh, from history, from outside the church, and from inside the church. Uh, I read one of the things that I like to read other than what I have to read just throughout the week for preparation. I love to read World War II battle narrative, okay? And there are a few different generals that really kind of stand out in the Second World War. And the first, his name is Omar Bradley. General Omar Bradley was beloved by his men. And they say, at least they do, Stephen Ambrose and, and another guy wrote a, a particular history book that I'm reading right now. But they say that the reason that he was so loved, he was able to turn around the campaign in North Africa, but it wasn't just his success, it was his character. They said that he was quiet, Competent, in other words, he was self-assured, he wasn't braggadocious, he wasn't proud, he was humble, 
He was competent. In other words, he knew how to do his job, but he was also a soldier's general. He loved his men, and his men loved him. So it's clear why people want to follow a guy like that. But then there's General George S. Patton, right? He's a little more notorious, right? In the campaign through Sicily, he was reputed to have twice within a month or two, he walked into a hospital, he approached a soldier who was, who was suffering from combat fatigue, what had been known as shell shock, but now they were calling it combat fatigue. He was, he was just absolutely in a catatonic state, and George Patton walks up to him in the hospital room and starts just blessing him out and slaps him across the face, calling him a coward. But something about this kind of, I don't know, twisted masculinity, something about this, I don't know, hard-charging abrasiveness, it caused some people to want to charge into battle with him. And some people still kind of really think he's a man's man because of the, the stuff that he did. People were kind of attracted to this. Inside the church, there are a couple different extremes. I'm, I'm listening to a podcast right now. I would, uh, I would invite you to, to listen along if podcasts are your thing. Um, but it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about a church plant that started a, an incredible church planting network throughout the United States. It, it, it was a church in uh, Seattle, Washington. I remember being in high school as the Lord was really doing a, a work in my, in my life. I was reading some of the things that this pastor, Mark Driscoll, was writing. But it turned out that he had a little more success than he had character. And what ended up happening was this whole thing came crashing down around him because his character was not strong enough to bear the success that his life was, was bringing he, he presented this message of strong families, strong men, men leading their families. Like, you men could go out and buy trucks. You men could go out and, you know, and, and tape up and fight and box and, and everything. But when it comes to stinking, like, leading a family devotional, all of a sudden your masculinity is nowhere to be found. And he, 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 he kind of laid out this charge for men to take up their responsibility and to, and to stop messing around with video games and playing the guitar and, and, and whatever the case may be. But marry a woman, love her cultivate her, uh, raise a child with her, come to church, and in 20 years, we're going to own this city for Jesus Christ. And this message, which is a very positive, powerful, and and very, I think, biblical message, was also laced with with a domineering leadership style. He was abusive to many of his people emotionally. For some reason, though, people were attracted to his sharp tongue that probably didn't really evidence the fruit of the Spirit. He was not patient, he was not kind, he was not long-suffering, but people were attracted to his sarcasm and his forward personality. Something about having this kind of leadership is is attractive. He he actually, in many ways, is very kind of narcissistic, kind of self-absorbed and things like that. And on the other side, there's there's like Joel Osteen, right? You turn on the TV, he's not going to make any demands on your life. You got Mark, you got Mark Driscoll over here making a lot of a lot of demands and calling men out of passivity and calling families to take up their responsibility to disciple their kids. And you got Joel Osteen over here. You listen to him; he's not going to lay out any kind of obligations. It's a very American gospel. It's a, a God who exists for us for our first world healthy and wealthy pleasure. 
It's a perfect thing for our, our day and age and our culture. There are no demands, only benefits. Do, you don't like it? Does it not fit? You can return it after 60 days. This kind of easy Christianity. Why were people willing to follow these people? Some of it is clear. Omar Bradley seems like a good example. George Patton seems like a bad example. You know, Mark Driscoll seems like a mixed example. And Joel Osteen, I would encourage you, just turn the TV off. I hope I haven't been unclear. (laughs) Why were people willing to drop everything and follow Jesus? Why were they, I mean, literally in their subsistence life, they lived in a eat-what-you-kill world in the first century. You drop your fishing nets, it means you probably drop your ability to eat tomorrow. Why were people willing to drop everything and follow him? Now, it's easy for us to think, you know, Bible times were different. Things were different in the Bible times. But friends, things are really not that different. Human nature has not changed in 2,000 years. We are still the same image bearers of God who are broken by our sin. Why were people willing to drop everything and follow Jesus? I would suggest to you it's this reason. It's because they saw Jesus for who he was. They thought that who he was was beautiful and they were willing, that they were able to rightly estimate his value. They were able to rightly estimate how much he is worth, right? That's why they were willing to drop it all. So I want to put to you the same question that Jesus put to his first followers. And that is this. What are you seeking? What are you after? Why have you come to Jesus? Why are you in his orbit? You see, Jesus cuts to the chase here in verses 35 and following. He says, you know, John was standing there. John preaches. Verse 36, he looked at Jesus. He said, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, two disciples heard this. They heard the preaching of John, and they responded to John's preaching by following him. They followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? What are you guys after? Why are you following me? Are you following me? This is me ad-libbing. This is not in the Bible at this point. Are you following me because you think I have some benefits that are attractive to you? Are you following me because you would like me to, to do something for you? Or are you following me because you see me for who I am? There's two kinds of following going on here. You know, people become associated with Jesus for a lot of different reasons. You think about, think about the rich young ruler. He had what he thought was already a fairly satisfying life. He thought that perhaps Jesus could add something to it. Perhaps Jesus could make him a well-rounded man. Perhaps Jesus could kind of fill in the gaps. Right? I've got my financial life in order. I've got my social life in order. I've got my health is doing well. I really need to kind of, I really need to kind of sand off this rough edge over here and add some kind of component to my spiritual life. Maybe he thought, I can have this world and live for it, placing my treasure here, but also I could kind of tack on a little eternal bonus, right? I could have a get-out-of-hell-free card. My life, my treasure is here, but maybe Jesus provides a fringe benefit over here. It didn't work out for the rich young ruler 
because Jesus was not interested in selling him an insurance policy. Jesus was interested in purchasing his life. Every compartment, every string, every fiber of his being. Jesus was not interested in being a tack-on to an already put-together life. Jesus was interested in being his life. And the man walked away because he wasn't ready to sign up for that. He wanted some fringe benefits. Think about the 10 lepers. Remember, 10 lepers come to Jesus, and what do they say? They cry out to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, Master, right? They say all the right words. Jesus, Master. Well, it must be, must be saved. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, right? They're crying out for mercy. But what happens? Jesus heals 10 lepers, and how many come back to him to praise him? One. One does. One does. Ten of them wanted Jesus, I'm sorry, nine of them wanted Jesus for his benefits. One of them wanted Jesus for Jesus because of who he is. So can I ask you to do the same thing that Jesus asked his first followers to do? Ask yourself this, why am I here? What am I seeking? Is Jesus valuable to you? Like, is he worthy to you? Have you come to him not desiring a bill of goods that he brings, but desiring him? Not just his benefits, but him. Are you seeking the feeling of being a good person, assurance that you're okay? Because I'm one of the good people. I go to church. Are you looking for kind of a cherry on top Christianity like the rich young ruler? You've got your life set, but this is a good component. It helps glue the family and teach good morals to the kids, but once they're graduated, I'm probably going to check out. Friends, Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Seek him and his kingdom, and he will take care of the rest. You know what people in Todd County need more than perhaps anything else? In the world. You know what people in rural America in general need? They need a picture of a church. They need a picture of a people of God who believe this stuff so deeply that it infects and it impacts every single category. Friends, this, this, the, the woods are full of this room temperature, nominal, just in name only on the margins of faith, kind of following, quote unquote, following Jesus. I can guarantee you one thing, it doesn't make Jesus look attractive to anybody. But this drop everything, all of my life is, is viewed through the lens of the gospel, kind of Jesus is worth it all. That is what looks like salt and light to those who are outside of Christ. Verse 38, the disciples asked Jesus a question that's a little deeper than they even realize. They say, Jesus, where are you staying? Let me give you a little hint. The Greek word for staying here is the same word that we render in John 15, abiding. Where are you abiding? Jesus is asked. Here's the funny thing. These people who are following Jesus, they want to ask Jesus where he is abiding, but Jesus came to call them to abide in him. 
That is what is the the beautiful little turn of phrase that's happening here. They try to shift the conversation to something more comfortable. Hey, Jesus, uh, where are you staying at in town tonight? Where, 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 Where are you lodging? And Jesus says, you're asking me where I'm abiding. I want to ask you, where is your life abiding? What have you claimed your, what have you staked your claim on? What have you, where have you put your tent pegs down? What are you fastening your life to? Jesus says, come and see. In other words, keep following, keep following me and you will find where my home is because his home is not of this world. Setting us up to see this beautiful picture later in the same book, John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, they want to know where Jesus is abiding. Jesus came to call them to abide in him. As Mark Dever has said, I referenced Mark Driscoll earlier. Mark Driscoll and Mark Dever are two vastly different people. Mark Dever says, the ultimate mark of conversion is not walking an aisle, but picking up a cross. Who are you following? Who are you following? I want to read to you an art form that is probably not uh, shared or listened to a lot uh, throughout the week from those in the room. But one artist has written these words, and I found them uh, very meaningful in my life when I was younger. A Christian hip-hop artist named Lecrae Moore wrote these words, and I'm not going to rap them for you. (laughs) That would be quite the scene, but I will read them because they are soaked in gospel truth. He talks about the difference between following Jesus and following Jesus. Suffer? Yeah, do it for Christ. You're trying to figure out what to do with your life? You make a lot of money, hope you're doing it right? Because the money is God, you better steward it right and stay focused. You ain't got no ride. Your life ain't wrapped up in what you drive, the clothes you wear, the job you work, the color of your skin. No, you're a Christian first. People start living for a job, make a little money, start living for a car, get them a wife, a house, kids, and a dog, and then they retire. They're living high on the hog. But guess what? They didn't ever really live at all. To live is Christ, and that's Paul, I recall. To die is gain, so for Christ we give it all. He's the treasure you can never find in a mall. Your money, your singleness, marriage, talent, your time, they were loaned to you to show the world that Christ is divine. That's why it's Christ in my rhymes. That's why it's Christ all the time. See, my whole world is built around him. He's the life in my lines. I refuse to waste my life. He's too true to chase that ice, which I think is a reference to jewelry. (laughs) Here's my gifts and my time because I'm constantly trying to be used to praise the Christ. If he's truly raised to life, 
then this news should change your life. And by God's grace, you can put your faith in the place that rules your days and nights. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that. Jesus isn't interested in selling you an insurance policy. He isn't interested in tacking himself onto an already pretty nice put-together life. He's interested in becoming your life so that you view your finances, what car you buy, how big a house you build, whether or not you buy the boat or whether or not you sell everything and go to Cameroon to share the gospel. He's interested in being that. He's interested in being that. They saw him for who he was because of the promises that he kept. Promises made in the Old Testament, promises kept in Jesus. Look at verse 40. It says this, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Simon Peter. Uh, I'm sorry, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's a reference to rock, which will become important later. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said, These are the first words spoken. And he said, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. How did the first disciples know that Jesus was who he said he was? Because they were steeped in the word of God. They knew the Old Testament and they knew this is the one they've been warning us about. This is the one they've been telling us about. So while some preachers out here are saying that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament, for the very first believers of of Jesus, it was because of the Old Testament that they were able to recognize who the Christ was. And they said, this is him. He's worth it. This is the time. Guys, we've got to drop our nets. It's time to go. No more playing around. No more nominal Christian in name only mess. This is it's time to go because he's the one who is going to keep the promises that were made in the Old Testament. Remember, he had no former majesty that we should look at him. How did they know? Was he more handsome? Did he have a halo around his head? That's not why people followed him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. Doesn't sound like somebody worth following, right? Follow him. He's a suffering servant. You follow a suffering servant, you better be ready to suffer and to serve. Doesn't sound like a, a call that really sells. How are we going to put that on a, on a brochure and get people to, to sign up for that? They recognized him that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then the testimony of the Word of God came alive. Roman, Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and that by the Word of God. John chapter 5, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So friends, the good news is this, the power to believe in Jesus does not rest on Jesus physically coming into this room today and walking down the aisles. If someone comes to believe in Jesus and to repent of their sins today, it won't be because Jesus came in to this room, you know, bloody and everything, walked down the aisles and said, follow me. It will be because you hear the testimony of his word, which is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago, saying, come, follow me. 
Jesus was the Word in flesh, and today we gather around the Word in text because it is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can be changed. That's why we got to be a Word-focused church, Trenton. Because I don't have any power, you don't have any power. We can, we can put on the greatest productions and we, we've done a good job, but guess where the power is going to be in VBS this week? It's going to be in the Word of God shared to hearts that we are praying God will open. And let's continue to pray that way. Promises kept, that was number two, that was point number two. Point number two is really short. I don't know if you're keeping up with the points. Point number three, it's called the worker of signs. The worker of signs. This is really interesting. You know, people, people look for a sign. People ask God for a sign. I remember when I was in high school, just beginning to try to follow Jesus, like asking, you know, trying to make decisions that are pleasing to him, asking God for signs. And it's interesting because Jesus comes and he does the signs, but he never really acts like the signs are where the power is at, right? He does the signs to make to, make, to, to testify that I am God. I'm the one that the Old Testament was talking about, right? I'm fulfilling all the promises. Promises were made. Now promises are being kept. But he doesn't ever really be like, oh, let me show you some more signs and then you'll believe. Usually what happens is Jesus shows the signs and the people's hearts are hard. How could that be? How could you see Jesus turn the water into wine? How could you see Jesus raise Lazarus? How could you see Jesus like do all these incredible things and still not believe because coming to Jesus, coming to faith in Jesus is not a matter of intellectual persuasion. It's a matter of heart transformation. God has to do the work. While Jesus certainly performed signs, he never really acted as if they were a good long-term basis of your faith. Friends, I hope that you'll have mountaintop experiences in your Christian walk, but those are a very poor fuel to keep running on. you got to run on the Word of God. And that is what happens here. The, the signs come, but Jesus puts the, Jesus puts the emphasis, it seems, on the Word of God. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 20, hopefully to make this point clear. John 20 says this. Now Thomas, we, we, we really kind of give Thomas a short shrift here. We call him Doubting Thomas, even though he's very much like us. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas has a moment of honesty. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm weak of faith. I don't know if I could ever believe. You guys have seen him, but I wasn't here when he came. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, but have yet believed. Jesus teaches two things here at once. First thing he teaches us is that he's a loving savior. He's willing to meet you at your point of need. 
If, if, if you need something, he's willing to provide that for you just like he was willing to provide it for Thomas. But he's also saying the power to believe is not in signs. The power to believe comes even for those who have never seen Jesus walk the earth. And that's good news for all of us, ladies and gentlemen, because God is still in the business of opening blind hearts and of changing stone cold hearts for hearts of flesh, even in 2021 in Trenton, Kentucky. That is good, good news. We see Jesus doing signs. He's bearing witness to, to who he is. In verse 48, he demonstrates his godhood. Verse 48, he says this, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This you know, raises the question, Jesus, how did you know I used to hang out under a fig tree? Because Jesus is God. He is who he says he is. And friends, if Jesus is who he really says he is, if he really has done what the Bible says he has done, then the last thing that makes sense is to come to him with some kind of casual, distant, room temperature association. That's the la- that, that makes absolutely no sense. If he is who he says he is, then our lives, we owe him a blank check. God, do with me what you will. That's the kind of life that, make, that makes sense. It's time to do as the first followers of Jesus did and rightly estimate his value. May 20th, the year 2000, was kind of a turning point day for many believers of a certain generation 40,000 college students gathered on this lawn, this this dew-laden lawn. It was kind of a foggy morning. Students were laying down trash bags and, and their backpacks and jackets on the ground so they wouldn't get wet as they sat to listen to a sermon. And what happened over the next 30 or 40 minutes really changed the trajectory of so many lives The kingdom of God was impacted mightily, and it might even be a part of the reason why I'm here today and why I'm still following Jesus today, because God uses means. He uses sermons that were preached, and I wasn't even there. I was 10 years old. John Piper delivered his famous seashells message. Five minutes in, he laid out a comparison that nobody forgot. And I'm reading now from an article that remembers that day. John Piper said this to 40,000 on-looking college students. Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnering up with Ruby, she was also pushing 80, going from village to village in Cameroon, driving a vehicle, the brakes gave way. Over a cliff they go. Dead instantly. John Piper says, I asked my people, is this a tragedy? 
Two women in their 80s, almost, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity in a, with death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? I asked. And by now, some among the 40,000 college students are yelling back at John Piper saying, no, no, not a tragedy. Piper affirmed, it is not a tragedy. But I'll tell you what is a tragedy. And he pulled out a page from Reader's Digest and he read it to them. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. That is a tragedy, he told the crowd. And he said, and there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to, bu to, get you to buy it. And he said, I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you. Don't buy that dream. Don't cr Cruising in your trawler, collecting seashells, working on your golf swing as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord. My seashell collection. My golf swing. And look at my boat, Lord. Don't waste your life, he said. And the words quietly tucked in before he barreled into another memorable anecdote. This one about a plaque in his home featuring C.T. Studd's poem, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. Friends, obedience to Jesus, living a radical gospel-centered life may not mean dying in Cameroon for you, but it might mean living somehow differently than you are right now. And I would ask you to meditate on that. What is most valuable? Are you following Jesus? Or are you following Jesus, because I can guarantee you that the satisfaction that he brings and the worth that will be stored up in eternity for living that kind of life will be worth more than any boat, than any truck, than any status, than any travel ball fame, than anything in this world could possibly offer. He is worth it all, and he's worth you dropping the nets to follow him. So, do you see the worker of signs? Do you see the one who kept promise? Do you see the Messiah? He is coming to make things new. And he says to you, follow me. Let's pray. God, as we have seen your word, we see examples of the first disciples, seeing you for who you are and determining what you are worth. 
rightly making a good accounting for what you are worth. You are worth it all. You're worth every sacrifice. Nothing else can possibly satisfy. But I pray that today we would be the people that would, the, the cry of our hearts would be no other worth, no other value comes close to the worth of the one who kept the promises, who made atonement, who took my sins on his back and carried them up a hill and was nailed to a cross so that I could be made free. I pray that that message today would shake us to the core and would cause perhaps a one who is a believer but is just very honest. I'm, I'm out on the margins. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm quote unquote following Jesus, but I'm not bold faced following Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that they follow his call. And I pray that today for the unbeliever would be the day that they come down front, talk to me and say, Greg, I need to know how do I follow this man? Tell me how to follow this man. Lord, I pray that you would do that work. I pray you'd do it in the hearts of young children this week at Vacation Bible School through our efforts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.